Hey, Andrew Talks to Chefs listeners, my new book, The Dish, The Lives and Labor Behind One Plate of Food, is now available for pre-order. Follow the link in the episode description for today's show at andrewtalkstochefs.com or wherever you get your podcast. We'd also love if you followed us on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast. And if you'd like to rate or review us and help new listeners find the pod, the best place for that is Apple Podcast. Thank you very much. Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. Enjoy the show. The following episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by Mies, the recipe operating system for culinary professionals. Founded by Josh Sharkey, a chef and restaurant owner for more than 20 years, Mies addresses the actual processes of cooking, training, production, collaboration, and execution. And the basic version is free for the entire culinary industry. From chefs to mixologists, if you manage recipes for professional kitchens, Mies was built to make your pro kitchen life easier. Store and organize your recipes with the most advanced recipe scaling technology on the planet. Get started by visiting getmees.com forward slash Andrew. That's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash Andrew. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sampellegrino.com. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. It's still a shock all of a sudden having 20 cameras around you or more and you have to be careful of everything that you say. You have to be careful of everything that you do because they could use any part of it. So it's high stakes. And as you said, too, there's a lot of people who are very strong cooks. I mean, there's people who've been cooking their whole life. I looked at it as it's a situation where I've got nothing to lose. I'm in this really fortunate spot where no matter what, my plan is to return back to college and finish up school. I'm just going to have fun and see where it leads me. And that's exactly what I did. That is the voice of Nick DiGiovanni, MasterChef alum, internet culinary personality and educator, and author of the new cookbook, Knife Drop. Nick is our guest today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. I hope you all are doing well. Our guest today is Nick DiGiovanni. If you watch MasterChef on television and or follow chefs on TikTok, YouTube, and other similar platforms, you may know of Nick and his work. He is out this week with his first cookbook. The title is Knife Drop. 
and we had him on the pod to talk about that as well as his career. More all about Nick in just a moment. Before we get to that, you may have noticed that this is our third episode in just six days. One reason we're dropping them with such frequency is that we have a pretty big backlog of recorded interviews and commitments for additional interviews in the coming weeks. So we're trying to share them as quickly as we are able to get them mixed and edited and written up and record intros and all the things we need to do before we can share a show. Uh, So that's one reason. Another is that two of this week's guests have books that published in the last seven days, and we wanted to help get them off to a great start with their publications. The third reason, to be completely honest, is that I want to make sure it resonates with all of you out there that a beloved sponsor has returned to the pod. If you have not yet check them out. I wanted to personally encourage any of you kitchen professionals out there to please heed the following message and look into what me's can do for your professional life. Yes, once again, this episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by me's, the recipe operating system for culinary professionals. A chef and restaurant owner for 20 plus years, Mises founder and CEO, Josh Sharkey, was frustrated that only financial or inventory software was available for the kitchen. Those are important to be sure, but they don't address the actual processes of cooking, training, production, collaboration, and execution. If you are a chef, line cook, mixologist, operator, or in any way manage recipes for professional kitchens, Mies was created just for you. What's more, Mies, the basic version, is free for the entire culinary industry. Store and organize your recipes with the most advanced recipe scaling technology on the planet. Upgrade to premium and let Mies make your entire business more efficient and centralized, train and onboard team members, manage production, and even process invoices. Plus, get laser-accurate food costs, allergen analysis, and nutrition labeling faster than you might think is possible. Founder Josh Sharkey's team of chefs and registered dietitians have tested the thousands, yes, thousands of ingredients in Mises' database to personally ensure that all yield loss, unit conversions, allergen data, and more are reflected every time you add an ingredient to your recipes so your food costs are more accurate than ever before. And if that all isn't enough to persuade you to check it out, as a listener to Andrew Talks to Chefs, receive 25 free recipe uploads and breakdowns on your new Mies account by signing up today. Learn more at getmees.com forward slash Andrew, that's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash Andrew. Go there from what I just read you or simply click through via the link on the episode description for today's show. Again, I would personally encourage you all, if you are in the industry, to check out Mies. It really will make your life easier. So as I say, our guest today is Nick DiGiovanni. I had never met Nick before this week when we sat down to do this interview, but I wanted to have him on the pod because he very much exemplifies a new category of chef that has proliferated 
over the last several years. And by the way, <clears throat> I'm scar sorry for my scratchy voice. It's an allergy thing. I've started and restarted this intro several times. There's nothing I can do about it. Uh, after talking for about this length of time, it's going to start getting scratchy. So you'll have to bear with me. Nick has worked in a few professional kitchens, but that is not how he comes to his current success. A passionate home cook who learned to cook in his family's home, Nick left college briefly a few years back to compete on the TV competition show MasterChef, where he placed third, and he parlayed that success and exposure into a full-blown career. He entertains and teaches about cooking on YouTube, where he has more than, get this, 10 million subscribers. And also on TikTok, where he has more than 11 million followers. If you're not active on those platforms or don't watch television competition shows, it's entirely possible you may not have known Nick's name before turning into the podcast today. And that is what I find so interesting. There are more ways than ever to be a chef and to be involved in the professional culinary community today than there ever have been. And Nick is one of those people charting a personalized career course that I think you'll find hearing about pretty fascinating. And as I said at the top of the show, we are also here this week, not just to discuss Nick's life, but also because his first cookbook, Knife Drop, Creative Recipes Anyone Can Cook, just published this week, and we get into that in some detail as well. Before launching into the interview, I do need to thank the good people at Dan Kluger's new restaurant, Grey Wind, in West Midtown Manhattan, and the adjacent cocktail bar there, Spy Gold, for hosting us for this interview. They provided a really comfortable and photogenic, I might say, setting uh, where Nick and I could interview and where his team could hang out while we did that. I also need to say, of course, that as always, our feature interview is presented by Sam Pellegrino. Whether in life or on the plate, every chef has a story to tell. Sam Pellegrino proudly helps them share those stories in their restaurants and right here on Andrew Talks to Chefs. The perfect complement to great food and meaningful interactions, Sam Pellegrino is delighted to be a part of the conversation. Learn more at sampellegrino.com. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Nick DiGiovanni. Here you go. Okay, so Nick, welcome to the show. You have a book out this week. I do. Before we get into your backstory and how you find yourself traveling and writing books and whatnot, tell us about the book. The book is called Knife Drop. It's full of creative recipes that anyone can cook. And it's sort of the motto that I live by, that anyone can get into the kitchen and cook, no matter your background in food, no matter your skill level. I have always gone by that motto, and I've stuck to that in every recipe in this book. Am I right? I mean, from the bios I read, you didn't go to cooking school. I did not go to culinary school. You were good enough that you could drop out of college and go on Gordon Ramsay's MasterChef and compete. I did. I temporarily, I would call it, left college and came back and finished, but I left really without telling anyone for, for a couple months, which yeah. was pretty funny. How did you come by your abilities? There's a lot of information in this book. It's written the way someone who would have gone to culinary school would probably write a book. In other words, there's some, you know, there's some basics up front. You take advantage of something that 
I remember like a decade ago, people were talking about QR codes mm -hmm. in books. Never really happened in a widespread way, but you take major advantage of that for certain te basic techniques yep. and things that are hard to convey in words. But how did you come by this depth of culinary knowledge? Family is where it all started. That I think is really what gave me that that spark and that excitement around food that I then tried to carry through college, through the restaurants that I worked in, really chasing food down everywhere I possibly could at that point. Through that, you were able to amass enough. Did you push yourself to try a lot of different things? Yeah, I was a sponge. I The money that I would make cooking at restaurants, I used as much of that as I could to actually try and go dine in other restaurants. I learned from different chefs around the world who would come to my college campus for lectures. I watched videos online, YouTube videos. I soaked every bit of knowledge about food that I possibly could. I read books. I mean, it just was every little source I could get that would teach me something about food. I would read it. I would listen to it. I would look at it. Do you feel like the fact that you came to it that way makes you a, a good cookbook author? I feel like a lot of times people who write cookbooks, they're so immersed in food their entire life uh, that they start to assume a certain amount of knowledge on the part of the reader. They have, I think they have blind spots. I mean, some books are just for advanced cooks. That's fine. But this book to me, it really seems like you haven't lost the ability to identify with someone at home who maybe needs to know how to debone something. or You know, you can't just write that step and assume right. they can do it. I like to teach. And for me, the fact that I feel I've always been a strong student means that in a way here, I was able to turn around and try to be a strong teacher. I thought really hard about all the ways that I learned a lot of these techniques and, and a lot of the things that I've learned in food and basically just tried to spin it around the other way to put it on paper and teach other people the exact same way I was taught. I'm going to step away from the book in a minute and mm -hmm. we'll come back to it later. I am interested in how you went about selecting recipes for this book. In particular, uh, did you develop recipes specifically for the book? I would describe this book as a high energy book. The dishes have fun names. The photography is high energy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's craveable stuff as some people would call it. Uh, you're nodding as I say this. Right. Was this drawn from a repertoire that you already had or were you thinking, okay, it's time to do a book? What would I want in a book as a consumer of some kind of, of a mass-directed cookbook? To me, it's ironic in one way that I've written a cookbook because I never use recipes when I cook, which sounds a little bit crazy, but I like that approach because I look at this book as something that I want you to take as a guide, as a reference, and then turn around and be able to be fearless in the kitchen, forget the book, and maybe keep it on the side as a reference that you can go to once in a while. I personally enjoy cooking and feel that it's the most freeing when you don't have to be looking at something every five seconds. I love that I was able to write all this out in a book and you can follow the recipes. And as you said, they're craveable, they're fun, they're exciting. But at the same time, I really want to push people to push the book aside eventually. So was it even, was it a big milestone for you to do it? It's funny because a lot of people, a lot of chefs you talk to, you know, like they grew up reading whoever. Mm -hmm. I mean, once upon a time, people would have said Julia Child. Mm -hmm. Now maybe they would say David Chang or Thomas Keller or whomever. And cookbooks are like a major part of their development. I mean, I know what you mean when you say, I cook intuitively. You have some kitchen rules up front in the book. And one of them is don't ever follow a recipe to the letter, including mine, meaning yours. 
But was this a big milestone for you? It is a big milestone. I look at it as, first of all, a really great exercise for me to have gone back to look at everything that I've learned in food, as I said, and pull it all together into one book. Because 100 recipes and 256 pages, that's not a ton of space to put everything that you've learned about something. It sounds like it, but then when you go to put pen to paper, it's not. It's something that I haven't quite stopped to really slow down and look at yet. And that's why I'm sort of hesitating as I think about I understand. it. And talk. You yeah. But, but it is, it's it is here. a big milestone. I think, I, I think too, the people that taught me a lot about food, family that, that, that are no longer here with me, I think they'd be really happy. I think they'd be proud. So it's a document of a lot of that stuff. It is. Let's go all the way back. Well, in your case, not that, how old are you? Can I ask? I just turned 27. Wow. Happy birthday. Thank you. So let's go back. Uh, you grew up in Rhode Island. I did. Is it uh, Barrington, Rhode Island? Correct. I spend a lot of time around uh, Charlestown and, and nice. Narragansett. You're a little bit north of that, a little more... I'm going to be totally honest with you. I don't. I don't even know. I'm so bad with just mapping things out. <laughs> okay. that I don't even... I love Rhode Island so much, and I still have my 401 phone number, which for me is a, it's a staple of anyone that lives in Rhode Island. That's right. the, that's I will keep that with me forever. It's a place that's always going to be very special to me. I try to go back and visit as much as I can, but now I've been in Boston for quite some time. Oh, I see. Okay. So uh, how old were you when you left Rhode Island? I was starting my junior year of high school. Okay. So what? tell me a little bit about, I mean, your family, I have a couple of very good friends from Rhode Island. I think of your family as very um, typically Rhode Island, certainly the part of it that you're from in that it is, you have, you come from a, a, a family that has many cultures intertwined. Yes. Italian. Yes. German. Persian. Yeah. There's a fourth. Which one am I forgetting? English. English. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of influence running through a home uh, with the possible exception of England. It's a lot of very intensely culinary Cultures. Absolutely, it is. Yes, yes. So, growing up, uh, who won out? Like, who dominated at the who dominated at the dinner table? If anybody did, or was it like a hodgepodge of all all of those influences? My German grandmother, who was married to an Italian guy, very typical traditional Italian, she cooked a lot of Italian cuisine. So she wasn't cooking her own cuisine in in that in that way, but she was cooking a lot of Italian. She was very very good with that. So I think. She's the one that I, I think back and, and she taught me the most growing up. I, I looked up to her the most in the kitchen. She was the strongest cook that we've had in our family. I, I would love to try and say that I could duke it out with her if she was here today, but I think she'd destroy me. Really? If, you, if this was like, if we were going to do like some kind of a throwdown show or something, <laughs> her, you would be the underdog. The student can sometimes become the teacher, but still, I she knew so much about food. She was so comfortable and confident and quick in the kitchen. She was very, very talented. You know, you were talking about recipes a minute ago. Was she someone who had like a, a file box of index cards or something? Or was she improvisational? She she does. We still have it. To me, it's one of our it's one of our family heirloom. It's one of those things that I want to carry forever. I, I have not yet been trusted with it. I've I've had it temporarily. I've got to take pictures of it, but it's somewhere <laughs> locked up. I'm not allowed to touch it unless I unless I ask permission. So hopefully someday. If there's one thing that I could take uh, to, to, to sort of keep and, and cherish from her, that would be my number one choice. So you would like someone to bequeath that to you? I'm, an, I'm, I'm dropping that here and now as a hint <laughs> to my family. Okay. You were the oldest of four brothers? 
Is that accurate? That is true. I mean, that's a pretty big family. Were, were dinners a big deal? Uh, you know, you mentioned this Italian influence. Was was Sunday night dinner like a thing in your family? What was the kind of place of the table in your childhood? It was rare that we didn't have dinner as a family every night. It almost felt off if someone wasn't there. That's how strict my parents were about everyone being there for family dinner. And then when it came to the cooking of the actual food, we all had chores. This is great for me because I love to cook. And oftentimes my chore was just making my chore. I'm putting air quotes right. was making dinner, which didn't feel like a chore to me. So that was what I was usually responsible for. I would enlist the help of my three younger brothers as sous chefs oftentimes and prepare some fun meal. It was a perfect creative outlet to cook every single night. Did you have uh, a natural aptitude? Like, did anyone in the family take note of you, like how quickly you pick things up? Or or did you have a particularly good palate, like when you would season things? Or was it harder for you? Was it, was it something that you wanted to be good at and had to really kind of push yourself a little to do that? Naturally, I loved food and cooking. So it wasn't so much the cooking part that was a challenge for me. I I, I craved it, I craved being in the kitchen. It was just learning and knowing what things pair together and what don't. And there were so many times where I would buy these ingredients. I loved, you know, you, you look up to some of those chefs that you watch on TV going through the market and they're strolling through a outdoor farmer's market, picking up veggies and smelling them and biting something. And I wanted to do that too, because that's a really fun thing to look at and see and say, hey, I want to try. So I would go to the market with my mom or by myself and buy things. But then oftentimes I'd bring them home and I would put two things together. And there are times in food that it just doesn't work. It's a fact, right? So that happened quite a bit. And I learned a lot from it. But that didn't deter you. You saw that as part of the learning process. No, it actually really bummed me out to look up to the rest of my family and see that people were maybe not touching it or diving into it as quickly as I would have wanted to. Right. Wanted them to. And so it, I think, just fueled me to want to figure out how to do it right. You mentioned something a minute ago that I didn't see in any of the bios I was able to read. You mentioned when you cooked in restaurants. When did you do that? So the very first restaurant that I worked at was called Al Forno. It was in Pro oh, Providence, Rhode Island. Important you know, restaurant. In Al Forno. Yeah. yeah. George and... Uh, Joanne. Joanne. Yeah, sure. That's right. a very important... I mean, that restaurant goes back to, I think, the 80s. It's it's an establishment. Anyone in Rhode Island, you say the word Al Forno, they'll know it. It is known as the birthplace of grilled pizza. It's got the best pizza that I've tasted anywhere in my life to date. I've been to Italy. I've made a lot of pizzas. I've tasted a lot of famous pizzas. Gone all over New York City. Sorry, New Yorkers. But it's to me, it's my favorite pizza in the world. Al Forno was the very first restaurant that I that I worked at. I there was a nice younger guy who worked on the line who sort of took me under his wing. And oftentimes I was just picking up a broom in the corner, sweeping the whole floor. Sort of the classic things that you do in the restaurant if you're that sort of entry level. Um, employee there. Was this in high school? This was this was in high school. Yeah, this was a summer in high school. And I loved it. I I loved it was it was the hottest kitchen I've ever worked in. So and, and it was the summer. So it was extremely, extremely hot. And people who have worked in restaurants know how how hot a kitchen can get to the point that you are sweating out way, way more water than you're actually able to even drink. It's well, just, there's basically a furnace sitting in the middle of the, like, sitting in the middle of the, crazy. I mean, a restaurant like that, I mean, yeah. a, a, the oven, right? That, that oven they use, I mean, it's like having a furnace right, it in, is. In, right there. I mean, on top of whatever's going on on burners and whatnot. Yeah, it was hot. It was hot. I was sweating, but I loved it. I loved the idea of this food that I was making going out to the other side to a customer. And eventually they let me make 
fried calamari and I could fry it off myself and put the sauce in the dish. And that meant a lot to me. It sounds like something small, but that meant a lot to me. The trust. Just the trust and, and even getting to do something very small, no matter what it was. If I could touch any part of the food, you know, part of a plate that went out to a guest, I felt like I'd done something. And I really craved and liked that feeling. And so Al Forno to me is, that's the, the very first professional restaurant job that I had. And it was great place to be as, as you know. I mean, a lot of people listening probably don't know that name, but when I was first coming up around the, in the food writing side, I mean, that restaurant is considered, you know, they're, they're like part of the club, yeah. you know, that club of early American chefs, restaurants that kind of forged new American cuisine and made it a thing. Al Forno was definitely part of that movement. And to my knowledge, the chef that was there back when I was there, he started much before long before I came and I believe he's still there. It's amazing. And so his name's David Renoso. He he he's still there. You went up going to Harvard. You know, you talk about loving this restaurant job. Did you have any inkling in your mind that you might end up doing anything even remotely like what you're doing now or even like that you might end up in a kitchen? I know you designed your own major and that it touched the food realm. Still, it's a long way from that and it most people I think who go to a, like a Harvard, they're not thinking pro kitchen, you know, or they're not thinking I'm going to be a chef of any kind. Was it in the back of your mind at all? Or were you uh, just kind of taking life kind of one year at a time? I was trying desperately to pick a major while at school. And I kept taking the entire list of 49 concentrations and then crossing them out quickly. Some were very easy to cross out. You know, there are things that I knew I was not going to be. I, I wasn't going to be an astrophysicist, right? There were very easy ones to rule out for me. And I would keep crossing them to, to the point that there were two or three left most of the time, same two and three every time, then I didn't really like any of those either. So on the side, I was working in another restaurant at the time called Waypoint, which really great seafood spot, learned a lot there, was trusted to do quite a lot more. It was a real job. I went in a couple nights a week. I got, you know, I, I made some good money there because I worked there for quite a while. And I, I was exploring food on the side while in this weird kind of time in my life where I was supposed to pick this other thing to do. Was there like a family pressure to do something quote unquote professional, something more kind of suit and tie? Uh, was that kind of the assumption or was that self-imposed? My dad had a very simple rule actually. The day that we graduate from high school and are headed off to college, we're on our own and they're not giving us another dime, figure it out. And in that sense, they trusted us to do what we wanted to do. As long as we were making some money, keeping ourselves afloat, essentially not coming back to my parents to say, hey, can you help us out with this thing? Then they were really happy. And so I don't think that they cared all that much what I did as long as it was, you know, something that I truly loved and that I was going to enjoy and that I was going to hopefully be good at. So I never got any pressure from them, which is great, I think. Uh, it was a simple rule, very easy to understand. And yeah. I, you know, I was making my money. I was, I was doing my thing and chasing down what I loved. So they didn't say anything. How does television come into your life? I know you auditioned for the for the show and you got on it, um, but what prompted you to do that? How did you first hear about it? That seems like quite a leap. MasterChef is something that I, I had never watched. I don't watch much TV. I just, I, I never really have. However, I was walking one day and I passed this flyer and you know it looked like fun. So I showed up to this audition and made a little raviolo that I thought would be a fun little tie and describe pretty well who I am in the kitchen. And one thing led to the next. And as you said, it just led to this 
this TV adventure. As part of that audition, did you have to do any, like, did they do an on-camera interview or did you have to have a friend like film you on an iPhone or was there some personality component to the audition? There was. It was fun. I got to involve my roommates in some of this stuff. I, I wanted to show my true personality. I, I, I was supposed to show who, who I was. And I was this college kid at the time who was cooking a lot inside my dorm, who was working at a restaurant up the road, who was doing everything I could with food in college. So it was it was great. It was it was a fun way to involve a lot of people that had been in my life at the time. Had you done like any theater or acting or anything like that? Or did you just come naturally to were you just naturally comfortable doing that part of it? Never no theater. I am the worst actor in the entire world. Okay. I'm just horrible. So, but you're comfortable being yourself. I'm comfortable being myself. I, I like to cook. It's as simple as that. I like to cook. So, in that context, especially, you're fine. Um, we'll put yourself out there. Thankfully, they don't ask you to do any acting on Master Chef, right? It's a, it's a reality show where they they literally do toss you in a kitchen and they just they set a timer and they let you cook. What was the reality show experience like for you? I don't watch the show that much, but I feel like a lot of people who go on there are they're pro cooks. Like that's how they're making their living. You're jumping into that fray. Gordon Ramsay is a presence. Right. How long did it take you to acclimate? to that whole environment? Pretty fast, faster than I would have thought. It's still a shock, all of a sudden having 20 cameras around you or more, and you have to be careful of everything that you say, you have to be careful of everything that you do, because they could use any any part of it. So it's high stakes in that sense. And as you said too, there's a lot of people who are very strong cooks, right? I mean, there's people who've been cooking their whole life, and there's a huge range of ages there. I looked at it as, it's a situation where I've got nothing to lose, I'm in this really fortunate spot where no matter what, my plan is to return back to college and finish up school. I'm just going to have fun and see where it leads me. And that's exactly what I did. Going back to the kind of stuff you consumed, you know, and uh, pre going on the show as a, as a food aficionado, as someone who liked to cook, what were the main ways that you would take in um, influence and inspiration? Was it mostly uh, video based? Was it a lot of YouTube? You know, you mentioned that you didn't particularly like to cook from recipes, but did you own cookbooks or did you read things like Kitchen Confidential? I'm always curious what somebody who's um, as relatively young as you are, like where the the news was coming from for you. After the initial inspiration that I got from family and from different mentors, it was a lot of experimentation that I did on my own with a combination of looking at a lot of cookbooks but I wouldn't use a cookbook in the same way that most people use a cookbook. I would literally sit on the couch in my dorm room and I would read through a cookbook. You'd read it the way people read novels. Yep. Yep. Which is, I don't know if people do that actually. I've never really asked around yeah. if people do I, that. It's, I hear it a lot from cookbook, you know, buyers, collectors. Yeah. When you think about it, it's not that crazy of a thing because you're really just sort of looking at these things back to back on a list, these this ingredient list, and then this this sort of path through a recipe and trying to put it all together in your head and just think about it. It's just a simple exercise in a way. So I did that a lot. And I, I attended lectures at school that had, you know, it, it had some of the best chefs in the world come in for, for this for this course there. And I quite literally probably got to hear the top 25 chefs in the world of the, of the you know, that 50 best restaurant list. Like I, the Massimo Boturas and all, the, that, that crowd. All of them. I was a TA as well for this. So I got to sit behind the stage and one of my best memories growing up was sitting with just me and Massimo Bottura after he had won Best Restaurant of the Year and drinking San Pellegrino. It's a memory. I still have the bottle 
I, I have the bottle, I put a date on it and it's half, it's, it's weird. I, he, he, I don't know. He, he might think this is weird, but it's, it's his bottle and he drank, I think half of it. And I just remember sealing the cap and I was like, this is going to make me remember this moment forever. So you still have the water. So, so I have the water. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, my sponsor thanks you. This show is uh, supported by Sam Pellegrino. It's fantastic. So that I couldn't have been better. Thank you. Thank you, bottle. Nick. I still have the bottle. <laughs> I get that. That's like in an old movie when someone gets kissed on the cheek or something, yeah. and they're like, "I'm never going to wash that right. side of my face again." Right. I'll have I'll have explained this in in the intro, which I'll have re- record later. Right. But why don't you? Because I want to I want to talk about how you got to exactly what you do. But how do you how do you define yourself and the and the breadth of things that you put out into the world right now? The first word that comes to mind is creative. I. I've always been creative. I've always liked to be creative and that carries through and shines through in food. I also understand that people with food can be very uncertain at times and be a little uncomfortable if it's way outside their knowledge base or something they've ever seen before. So I like to keep recipes that I've created relatable, but just put a nice twist on all of them. So I think that's the way that I think about food, especially when I share it with others. I still want there to be something there that you understand or that you've seen before. I think that's a much easier way to have someone dive in on something new, on trying something new, than it is to just give them something way out there that they've never heard of, never seen before. A chef that's not tethered to a restaurant, right? Do you consider yourself like a traveling chef? Do you consider yourself a streaming chef? I mean, you have no shortage of people who are seeing what you do, right? And now they have this, I mean, they had the ability through videos before to, to replicate yeah. it. Now they yeah. have this book. Yeah. Um, but I'm just, I mean, you, it seems to me like you have set out very successfully in some ways a, a career that wouldn't have existed 20, 30 years ago. You know, the, the nature of your career. I'm just wondering how intentional that was or uh, if you just, if it just kind of almost started, you know, happening organically yeah. after you did the show. Does that question make sense? Yeah, yeah, in a way. It just happened because there's no playbook for this career that I and many people are chasing down right now. So every single day that you move forward is you're in a, in many ways you're forging a new path that just hasn't been done before. Does it feel that way to you? Like, do you feel like you're part of a new generation of talent that's kind of going about it a different, a little differently than it's been gone about before? Like, do you feel like you're part of something or are you just kind of doing your thing? I personally just love seeing what's happening with all of it. It's almost hard to say. I just think everything changes with the times, right? And right now, the one of the easiest ways for people to learn to cook, and there are lots of people that are interested in cooking, is to watch quick little videos online. And so if you can adapt to that and, and create what people are looking for, then it's great. And so that that's essentially what I've tried to do. It's really hard to talk about it in so many ways because it's so new and I don't fully understand it and I don't think anybody does because it's just changing so fast and it's no longer, as you've suggested, the traditional path of making your way through restaurants and then maybe trying to audition for a show or or trying to eventually go into a traditional TV network. It's still there, but there's also all this other stuff. Yeah, it's not the only game in town. I mean, I'm a huge stand-up comedy fanatic, right? And you know, there's people like, I'll say the name Andrew Schultz right now, Mm -hmm. okay? Most people listening to this probably don't know who Andrew is. He is massive in his own, on YouTube, on his self-produced specials, right? I mean, like millions of people know who this guy is. He sells out shows. A lot of people who aren't plugged in on that front don't know who he is, but that is happening in that world. And I feel like it's happening in the food realm too. Um, And I personally, I always say this to my 
friends who are a little bit older than me. Things change. I think it's exciting. Um, I, I've always enjoyed watching this industry um, mutate and evolve. So uh, thank you for your answers. I appreciate it. Because I am always it's interested. Difficult. Like, it's difficult. It's difficult to answer. It's because there's no uh, guidebook. You can't go buy a book that tells you how to... Like if you're a young cook you can go. Uh, who wants to be in restaurants, you can go buy uh, Becoming a Chef by Dornenberg and Page, right? And that's kind of like right. almost a step-by-step way to go about it. There's nothing like that for someone who's on your path. Right. It's... It- it's it's so challenging to talk about because even though you look from the outside and I'm in it and it looks like I would know some of these answers, it's so new that it's very unpredictable. There's not that much out there about it yet. It's so new. It's, does that excite you or what's does that nervous making or both? It excites me in the sense that I am one of the fortunate people who can hopefully take it in whatever direction I want. And then at that point it's sort of up to me and, and others to figure out what direction that exactly is. And that way it's a little stressful too, because I can't ask someone else what's next. Right. right? Yeah. But it's exciting. There's a lot of potential. Let's talk about the book. First of all, the foreword is by Gordon Ramsay. You're the second person I've had on the show this year who has a foreword by Gordon Ramsay. Really? The other one was Ariel Fox. Wow. Who was on Hell's Kitchen. Gordon's known for being intense not just on camera. I mean, Gordon's known in the industry yeah. uh, as someone who doesn't suffer fools very well. Also somebody who's very loyal, you yeah. know, to people who have worked with him. Can you just tell me what's your experience? I mean, you guys did this uh, crazy, um, you know, the world bre- world record setting beef mm-hmm. Wellington together. Yeah. The biggest beef Wellington ever. Yeah. What's your experience of this guy? I love him. I really do. I think he has this personality, as you said, that when most people watch him online or on TV, he's, he could be a little scary, right? And that's his whole persona. He's very passionate. There's no question about that. I think he's really, really good at what he does. He's, in fact, the best at what he does. And I, I look up to him a lot. I, I, he's done a really great job having a normal life outside of all the stuff that he does too. He's, 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 he's got friends. He's got a great family. He's he he focuses on the little things, and then I and then on the other side of things, he can go into a kitchen, he can blow everything up, and 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 go crazy in there, and 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 is very intimidating to people. But it's all out of passion, and it's just because I think he he cares so much about what he does, and so I I look up to him a ton. I I really like him, and maybe it's by design, right? He's got to keep part of his life private. But I wish more people could know the Gordon who's not on TV. The book itself, as we've yeah. said, there's, you know, you, you do have some of this, uh, you, you know, you have these, uh, you know, demos of things that one needs to be able to do in the kitchen. There's some basic um, kitchen rules that you set out. It is like most cookbooks, uh, first and foremost, a recipe book. You go through different uh parts of a meal, you know, the way the recipes are organized. Yeah. Are there things in here that you are particularly fond of and or that you think, uh, you know, you said you learned to cook by cooking, right, with your family. Right. Are there recipes in the book that you think are particularly educational? Like if you make this dish, you know, you'll come away maybe doing a few things you haven't done. The BLT, for instance, when I look at that, it's a very simple, basic recipe. Everyone knows what a BLT is. But when you look deeper and you look at the layers, I am so careful which e- with each and every ingredient in there. You have to pick the right lettuce. It's got to be crispy. It's got to look nice. It's got to be inviting when you put it on the sandwich. You've got to, first of all, pick good tomatoes, ideally when they're in season, and then salt them and make sure that all that flavor comes out of the tomato by the time you go and bite into the sandwich. And then 
that tiny little thin layer of mayonnaise, and of course the bacon. I hope everyone listening, you bake your bacon, not, nothing else. Bake your bacon, and, and you can't forget it. You mean it because, as opposed to having it uh, right. in a saute pan. Right, right. Bake right. your bacon, and, and you can't forget it because the word bake is, is basically in bacon <laughs> when you say it, right? So remember that. Essentially every step of the process in, in, in the BLT, in the, in the book, for instance, every ingredient is true with care. I'm, I'm very intentional and purposeful about what I use and why I use it and what I do to it before you go and assemble the whole thing. And for a recipe like that, it might sound silly to care so much about a BLT, but then when you taste it, you realize, and it makes so much sense. Well, this would also be right. An example of don't follow anyone's recipe to the letter, right? Yeah. Because, uh, you know, you, you may like your bacon well done, mm -hmm. uh, especially in a, in a BLT. Mm, yeah. Somebody else might not, yeah. you know, they may not, they may have, a, they may not like something that crunches like that, right. you know, right. they can, they can take it a little lighter if, if God forbid, but if they wanted to, <laughs> um, uh, uh, the type of lettuce. Yeah. I mean, a, yeah. you know, we all have in our mind, I think what goes on a BLT. Yeah. Uh, but if you wanted, you know, I suppose you could make it with, you know, you could go fancy. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, the bread. I mean, it's such a simple thing, right? But there are all these well, choices that different people might make. Think about how many choices there are for just a BLT. If you're talking about, let's let's keep it simple and say there are four or five ingredients, just think of all the different combinations of every brand. Walk to the store and look at the, the shelf of bread and then think of how every single BLT would taste if you made it with all those different types of bread. It's very different. Yeah. I mean, I'm reminded of um, actually... The chef whose place we're in today, Dan Kluger, has an amazing burger at his restaurant, Loring Place. I think he actually does one upstairs here at Grey Wind. Um, but it's it, as good as the burger is, it, everything else on it is so mm. well sourced. It was interesting to me hearing you talk before about how you're kind of an intuitive cook. Um, because, um, you know, I'm not used to seeing this as much in American cookbooks, but you, you know, you give volume measurements for most things, yeah. but then you give weight. Yeah. I associate that with, to use a word I just used a minute ago, you know, highfalutin kitchens, sure. not with, not with pastry, but you know, on the savory side of things, um, when it gets that specific, yeah. uh, I associate that with not being an improvisational person. It's right? a great point. Why is it there for Like for you, why, why did you want that in there? Because I, I think that's a striking juxtaposition. It's a really great point. I've gone this entire time talking about the book saying that it's for everyone. If you so choose to follow everything to a T in there, I'm not, I can't stop anybody and I'm not going to stop anybody. And I've tried my very best to create all the recipes in the way that I think they taste the very, very best, right? But I can just guarantee right now that if you make them to a T like that every single time, there's gonna be something that's a little too salty for you. There's gonna be something that's a little too smoky for you. It doesn't matter. It's not gonna taste perfect to you. It's gonna taste perfect to me, but it's not gonna taste perfect to you. So I like having the very specific weights, the very specific instructions, everything in there. I really have made it so that anyone could pick up the book and follow that to a T, right? You could follow it. It's very simple to follow many things if you just look at those weights, as you've said. But I hope that you go off script a little Got bit. Got it. To put it in a positive way, right? If you, yeah. if you just, for whatever reason, don't have that confidence yet yeah. in the kitchen yeah. and you are going to follow this to the letter because you're a little afraid to take that leap, right? Um, then this the way to equip you to really nail it. Well, if you go and spend $80 on lamb chops for a really special occasion, right. I understand why you don't want to mess those up. So right. go ahead and follow them very strictly and, and nail the lamb chops. Make the best lamb chops you've ever had, right? But if if... If you're dealing with a BLT and you're okay with being a little 
you know, all over the place, then, then don't, don't even look at it once you've gathered all the ingredients. We have to stop in a minute here, but I think it's a great looking book. Um, I think, like I said, I love the energy of it. I love kind of the diversification. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a recipe that at least one that uses an air fryer. This kind of like dovetails with some of the stuff you do, you know, on your TikTok, and, and I've seen stuff you've done with, uh, you know, kitchen hacks, right? I mean, an air fryer is not a kitchen hack, but you've done a lot of stuff. Uh, how, how do you like people to find you? Where, where's the best place? I mean, I'll link to all this, but where's your focus and where can people find the most content from you? YouTube is where I spend most of my time. Every platform I think is very different and you can learn something from each platform. Some are more fun and games, some are more serious, but YouTube is a place for me where you can go on, on my channel and you can watch an hour long masterclass of me just teaching everything I know about food and giving you a really basic understanding and bringing you all the way up to some of the more kind of more intense finer techniques or you can watch some really goofy video of me and Gordon making the world's biggest beef wellington so youtube is 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 my favorite it's all under my name nick Giovanni. so it's very simple so for everyone listening we will link to all of those destinations the book is knife drop creative recipes anyone can cook it's by nick Giovanni. nick thanks for coming on the pod thanks so much for having me And that's our show for today. Again, my great thanks to Nick DiGiovanni for joining us. By all means, pick up his new book, Knife Drop, Creative Recipes Anyone Can Cook. Links to where you can purchase it, as well as to Nick's website, YouTube channel, TikTok feed, and so on in the episode description for today's show. Thanks also to Mies, the recipe operating system for culinary professionals, for their support. Try out their free basic version today by visiting getmeez.com forward slash Andrew. Again, our thanks to Grey Wind Restaurant and Spy Gold Cocktail Bar for hosting this interview. If you are in New York City or find yourself visiting New York City, I recommend both of them to you heartily. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you would like to support us, we ask that you do that by telling a friend, posting about the show on social media, or rating and or reviewing us at Apple Podcasts. Our thanks as always to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre on iTunes. Please follow us on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to chefs.